December 1st, 2013, lecture discussion number 134 on the book of Romans. Uh, and uh, because it's the time of year that it is, and I get to watch all this stuff go on around me, I, I, get, uh, I get fascinated by it. I'm fascinated to really quickly get this out of the way before we go, go back to 1 Kings 13. Why Black Friday? Hey, it always occurs to me that if Black Friday is such a great idea, and I saw pictures of you, you guys post them on Facebook and stuff, and I look at you, and it's uh, it's a delightful, I have to say. And, um, and yes, uh, yes, Misty, you had the exact same face that you had on Bookface, right? It was it was huge. I give it to you. But if Black Friday is such a great day to buy things, then what would be the uh, the absurd uh, natural conclusion if we extended it, extrapolated it out? Every day should be Black Friday, right? But then it won't work, will it? So obviously, you can begin to see that perhaps they are manipulating you into thinking that Black Friday is very special. Because if it was really that valuable, I would have 365 of them. And I would certainly have more than just one. So uh, I, I urge you to uh, look at the math of it sometime and see how things are going. It's the same thing. Somebody had a discussion with me that he had finally figured out that the federal government does not need to tax to get money. Because the federal government can do what? That you can't. Well, you could, but you would get caught. But the federal government can do what? They can print money. So why should they collect taxes when they can just simply print what they need and use that? It's the same argument with the Black Friday, isn't it? And you can see immediately the flaw. If you carry something uh, to its conclusion or through the absurd, it, you, it, it illustrates the flaw. 1913, the definition of $20 was one ounce of gold. Okay? That's the definition of $20, one ounce of gold. I take $20, I go to the bank, they give me one ounce of gold. Well, we're clearly not in that situation. There's your first economics lesson. Why should I collect taxes when I have the capacity to print it? That is essentially, by the way, what's happening now. They're not collecting taxes, are they? Are they printing? Yes, quantitative easing. It is some of the most fantastic printing ever. It is exactly, ultimately, the same math as why aren't there 365 Black Fridays. Okay, just for fun. I just, uh, this type of year, uh, time of year, I... I have the same kinds of weird thoughts. When we last uh, left off last Sunday, we were still at uh, 1 Kings 13. And uh, I'm attempting to come to some defendable conclusions as to the motives of the unnamed man of God and the old uh, line prophet, as well as the exact or complete meaning of the three-phase commandment from God given to the unnamed man of God. Okay, God said... You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. And God commanded the unnamed prophet uh, in this particular uh, way. And the implication is a direct personal uh, divine commission. So God gave the unnamed prophet a direct uh, personal divine commission from God himself. And uh, let me just put it on the board. Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. And return, don't return the same way you came while you were in this land. So there's his three-phase commission. 
And this one is this don't return the same way is the one that is, causes the most problems for people. This, these two are fairly explanatory. And don't eat, don't drink. But why? Why should he be prohibited? He's essentially on a fast, isn't he? The entire time he is headed into the northern kingdom of Israel. Know that what we're talking about here, the context of all of this, is that I have Israel, right? And I have a northern kingdom that's called Israel, and I have a southern kingdom that's called Judah. I have ten tribes up here that all eventually go get captured and uh, taken to Assyria, and that's where they are today. That is why this war that frees up the Assyrian entity for the first time in 3,000 years approximately was so uh, significant to be alive at that time, as you know. Anyway, so along with that mysterious three-phase commandment from God that was given personally to the unnamed um, uh, prophet is the inexplicable violation. Don't eat it, don't drink it, bread or water. And, And the fact that he did violate it. That's what I mean by inexplicable violation. That's pretty simple. Don't eat any bread there. Don't drink any water there. Don't return the same way you came. That's fairly easy. But yet the man of God who got this direct personal divine commission, in fact, violates at least these two, the eat and the drink part. We'll get into whether or not he violated the return part. What could cause that? Because as you know, the story is fantastic. This heroic, courageous, powerful man of God comes to the northern kingdom where the king Jeroboam has has this counterfeit feast day. And yet he, this man who spoke directly to God over this, He violates this and returns to Bethel with a lying old prophet. What caused it? How did he fall for this? How did he fail? And it can't be the absurd uh, lying prophet story, the angel told me lie. It can't be that. And we've discussed this a little bit, and and, uh, I've given you some ideas. I'm going to give you some more today. The man of God came, came up to northern Israel. He came up to the two-calf altar of Jeroboam. He blew it up. He withered the arm of Jeroboam. Thus, when he did that, as you know, as you remember, I hope, he identified Jeroboam as a type of the Antichrist, the evil, worthless shepherd that comes to kill the people of Israel, Zechariah 11.17. And it says there in 11.17 of Zechariah that the withered arm man will eat the flesh of the fat of Israel, of the sheep of Israel, In other words, he's a worthless shepherd that is doing only one thing, and his intention is to kill as many Jews as he can. And it says he will eat the flesh of their fat, and he will tear their hooves into pieces. And that is whom Jeroboam is identified as. And the man of God refused the reward and the kingdom offer from Jeroboam, the evil king. He didn't hesitate. The reward and the kingdom offer from Jeroboam, uh, he turned it down flat. So how can it be that he would then violate this? How can it be that an old prophet with an obvious stupid lie could get the man of God to go back to Bethel? The king Jeroboam couldn't, but the lying old prophet could. Or so it seems. 
And that, I think, is the key. It seems that that happened. And I want you to think a little bit more complexly. Bethel is the center of Baal worship, 2 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 2. And he goes back there and violates his divine, personal, from God commission. Put yourself in the position of that. God says, go into the midst of, pick your most vile city that you can, blow up its center of worship, don't eat food, don't drink water, and don't come out the same way you go in. Do you think that somebody with an absurd angel story could get you to fail? I would say, and here's what he says, hey, an angel told me to come back to my house and have some pizza. Diet Coke, would you fall for that? After God spoke to you personally and directly, and you go forward and blow things up and wither somebody's arm and make this powerful statement publicly, would you be suckered in by an angel told me? I don't think you would. I don't think he was. As you know, you've been here the last few weeks. So that becomes the question. How could it be that an old prophet with an obvious stupid lie could get this powerful, courageous, heroic man of God with a direct divine commission from God himself to go back to Bethel? And and as we have previously discussed, there is more to this story, obviously. There's more context to review and more details to gather. The unnamed man of God has a name. I've been calling him the unnamed man of God now for three weeks, knowing all along that I think he has a name. I don't think he's the unnamed man of God. <coughs> it's called an educational diversion for the sake of driving in his name. It's a technique. I learned it in, in services. And I submit that knowing that the unnamed prophet's name is of primable importance. Primable meaning first. And it aids greatly into understanding his reasoning for returning. Once you know his name, you can figure out why he returned. Why this man of God is, this is something I have always wondered. Why this man of God, this powerful, heroic man, is doing what when he is caught, essentially? He's sitting under a tree. And that has always been where I stopped in this story. What I mean by that is I want to know how much time elapses. I'll try to write it out for you. I have a big festival. I believe child sacrifice is coming. Man of God comes in, or is occurring. Man of God comes into the festival, blows up the altar, withers the arm, says this three-phase commandment, leaves. So how much time from the time he walks into the middle of that and essentially blows everything to pieces, makes that proclamation to where, we, where he's caught, essentially, sitting under an oak tree? How much time did that take? How far did he get? How much time has elapsed between the man of God's refusal to the king's offer, which is essentially right here, 
He refuses the king's offer publicly. He yells out the commandment that he was given, his divine commission, is, and then he leaves. How much time from there to there? See, how much time between the time he's under the oak tree and, uh, and the sons of the lying old prophet father tell him about it and the lying old prophet, I'm sorry, what did I say? The lying old prophet chases after the unnamed prophet who really has a name. Does that all make sense? How much time did that take? Put it another way. How did the old prophet catch up to the man of God? What would you do? Put yourself in the story. You just blew up a place where you're totally surrounded by people who want to do what to you? Kill you instantly. Tell you so. And then you turn down the reward from the king in front of his entire what? Essentially his, his, his army, or at least his, his guard, his highest military people, you make him look what? Good or bad? You make him look weak for sure. You don't want his stuff and you, you wither his arm and you restore his arm. You do whatever you want. You walk right into the middle of his place and blow it up. And then you leave. What do you expect will happen? Somebody will come what? After you. Who will it be? A good person? And so what do you do? You go and you sit under an oak tree. Now, I'm, I'm obviously proposing that none of us would do that. You know, what's the old joke? All you need in life is a fast horse and a 20-minute head start. Or all you deserve in life. He's got it. And he stops. What makes him stop? I'm saying to you, and you know his name, and you know what made him stop, you figure out why he violated a direct divine order from God himself. And I've always had a sense that the man of God was waiting for somebody. And I've read it. There's nothing in the story or the text that suggests that, but I've always had a nagging suspicion that the man of God's head start would seem too great for this old prophet to catch him. And so that little detail has always set out to the side for me. Why did the man of God reveal his identity to the old prophet? If I know I'm being chased by people, and I know they're going to do what? See, the first thing that occurs to me is when he does what he does, and then he takes off, and he's going a different way, that Jeroboam says, first guy that hunts him down brings him back to me in pieces, I'm giving you, I'm going to give you the reward I offered him, or whatever, some reward. I would think there'd be a massive manhunt. And by the way, is this the reason that God said don't return the same way? Because you're going to be hunted down and killed? The answer to that? No. It's far more complicated than that. Just in case you were thinking. So anyway, people, I believe, uh, he would know, the man of God would know, that somebody would be after him. Surely he expected to be headed down, uh, hunted down, and, and I think that he expected a bounty on his head. And so he's doing what? Put yourself in the story. 
You've got a fast horse, you've got a 20-minute head start, nobody knows which way you're going, and you stop. Why would he do it? I am again saying to you that he did it on purpose. And when somebody catches him that doesn't know who he is and says, who are you? Are you the man of God? He answers back to him. Are you the man of God? I am. Who does that? Clearly, I have this picture of Christ there, huh? I have Gethsemane. Anyway, we're going to endeavor to persevere and tie up those and other loose ends today. But I have this little bunny trail. Remember when I used to write, or I used to put little bunnies on the on the board? I haven't done it in a long time. And I used to do it this way. Right? And everybody would ask me what it was. And I said it was the Energizer Bunny. Did anybody know that? And I used to write that on, I used to put it on my tablet when I, I don't know why I've stopped doing it, but I have. I just, I don't know why I brought that up. I guess maybe I'm tired from uh, putting furnaces together for the week. Uh, but before I, uh, I tie up those loose ends, a little bunny trail, and it's actually applicable to our current position, sort of, maybe. Anyway, a certain pregnant redhead who shall remain nameless, heretofore referred to as the unnamed pregnant redhead. That's funny, you'll get it later. Asked me the other day the Luke 16 question, which I always call the uh, dead rich Pharisee question of Luke 16, 19 through 31. I didn't put that on the board. I don't think I do. You all know uh, the Lazarus and the rich dead Pharisee thing, if you will. Now, how this readily applies, or or more aptly, how this helps us in 1 Kings 13, is that, as you know, everything, and I mean everything, that the rich dead Pharisee, you'll see it as the rich man. I'm telling you he was a Pharisee. I've uh, defended that in the past. I don't have time to defend it again. But the rich, everything the rich dead Pharisee utters in that, and that's not a parable, that's an actual event. Christ never calls that a parable. So I really had a Lazarus, I really had a rich dead Pharisee. Both die essentially on the same day. One goes to be uh, in paradise, the other one goes to um, torment in Sheol. And everything that rich Pharisee utters that now, who's now dead is something. All of it, not any of it any other way, all of it is an evil lie. If you ever find yourself reading that story, actual true story given by God himself, you ever find yourself feeling sorry for the Pharisee, the rich Pharisee, you have been fooled. Everything he says is a lie. Or it is an accusation against God's goodness, his holiness, or his justice, or his power. All of it is wicked. It's, it's a clever, very clever lying trap in addition to be an accusatory statement declaring that there is no solution to sin and free will. He is saying in there that I, I shouldn't be here. Send Lazarus to help me. Lazarus should at least be here with me, with me. You've made a mistake. 
I want to go help my brothers. Don't believe that for a second. Not even that long. He doesn't want to go help his brothers. It is a lie. It is saying horrible things about the character of God. It is saying that God has no power, no right, no authority to judge him. Never feel sorry for the dead rich Pharisee. Because you are being fooled. So anyway, ultimately at the base of it is that he is saying that there, you have no right to judge me. You do not have the power or the goodness to judge me. And there is no solution to sin and my free will. Which you know is the Matthew 4, Genesis 15, Matthew 26, 36 through 52 issue. And so all of those fit together. And by now, hopefully, you're aware, uh, are well uh, uh, entrenched in the connection between 1 Kings 13 and Matthew 4. We have the same element. We have the evil Satan. We have the evil Jeroboam. We have the man of God. In both cases, he's offered a kingdom and a reward if he'll just do what? Join with me, which means right here, I'll be here, you'll be right underneath me, right? And so the elements of 1 Kings 13 and Matthew 4 are the same. And Matthew 4, of course, is tied to the rich dead Pharisee question of Luke 16. See how that all goes? Which is how we get to the dead rich Pharisee question of Luke 16. Asked in a roundabout way by the nameless pregnant redhead. Who actually asked it this way. How much, if any, how much, if any, knowledge slash awareness... To those who are disembodied and with Christ in his third heaven, how much knowledge do they have of the current conditions on this earth, if any? It should be noted that the nameless pregnant redhead did not actually ask it in that way. I took the liberty of to modify her question in a teensy little bit. Okay. But she wanted to know if there was any ability to communicate from the third heaven, from the saved people, ever so slightly. And, and if that were true, could we, who are in this physical reality, detect their communicative e- efforts? That's what she wanted to know. In other words, can those who are in the third heaven waiting for Christ to bring them at his return? Notice I said return. I didn't say rapture. I said Those in the third heaven are waiting for Christ. If you're there, if we're there together, we're going to be waiting for Christ to come with us at his return. So let me say that more precisely. Can any of those in the, are all of those in the third heaven, can they see this physical reality in real time? And immediately you recognize, I hope, what? Intelligent observation. Can they see us? They are intelligent. You also, I hope, recognize quantum entanglement. Did you know that the Luke 16 question is about quantum physics? You also would want to, if intelligent observation is going to get you into interferometry.
And here I'm going to have what's called also quantum uncertainty. Oops, down, off, I was trying so hard to keep that from happening. Okay? That is what that question is. Can they see us? Can we detect that they see us? If they're observing us, can we feel that observation? Or the observation effect is what it is, as you know. Okay? Intelligent observation is a fact of our physical reality. That's why I keep bringing it up. That's why I want you to know about it. Things are affected by intelligent observation. You can feel yourself being observed. And by the way, this is very troubling to the materialist. The materialist is the same as the physicalist. The physicalist is the same as the materialistic reductionist. It's the same as the particle reductionist. It's the same as the monist. A very troubling intelligent observation or the observation effect, the fact of interferometry, the study of the the observation effect, essentially, or uh, wave-particle dualism. All of that is very troubling to the materialist who says that we are particle-based beings and reducible to just pure particles. And when we die, we just become particles, random particles, and there is no true existence. The fact that intelligent observation exists, he cannot rationalize with his reductionism. And so the nameless redhead is essentially then asking, can we feel the intelligent observation of beings that are now non-physical or any non-physical being? Which then takes us to the lying dead, dead uh, rich Pharisee, or the lying rich dead Pharisee, whichever you prefer. And therefore, if I'm going to talk about the lying rich dead Pharisee, I'm going to immediately go to where in the Bible? I'm going to go find all the other lying Pharisees. And so I'm at the lying old prophet. And I'm also at angelic observation. We are on theater, on spectacle, on display, if you will, for the unseen angelic realm. 1 Corinthians 4.9, Hebrews 10.33, Hebrews 13.2. The angelic host can see us. And Paul is saying, we're, that's on purpose. Can we, so they're observing us, they are intelligent, they have intelligent observation. Is that affecting us? Is that affecting the physical reality? You're in George Berkeley now, perception and reality. This is why all this philosophy and all of this physical, um, uh, non-physical sciences, quantum mechanics, is so important to us. Eventually this becomes a discussion of light, doesn't it? The physics of light and intentionality. You've heard me say this many times, and I know it's boring, but it belongs here in this particular uh, segment of the, of the lecture. The non-physical mind, your mind, assigns meaning to chemical processes in the physical brain. The brain takes in information, uh, just restrict it to seeing and not smell or taste or hearing or touch. Just seeing. Seeing causes. I'm looking at you. 
And that, that scene is going into my physical brain and shows up as a chemical process. Something has to read that physical process and assign meaning to it, much less it also assigns a, a three-dimensional images. That in itself is a, a dramatic thing to study. So I have this process of essentially photons of light reflecting off of you, going into my through my lenses of my eyes, into my brain, and, and a chemical process occurs, and something inside me is able to assign intentionality or meaning to it. So what I'm asking, what exactly is the seeing process? And you know that you see in your mind because you can close your eyes and still see. You do it every night you're dreaming. Lori was talking to me today about how she had a dream about somebody's head that she knew on somebody else's body. So we are weird things, our little subconscious dreaming mind. And uh, most of the times, I'll tell you this, people ask me all the time, are you any good at uh, figuring out the meanings of dreams? And I said, yes, I'm very good at it. Oh, fantastic. They're really anxious now to know what it is I'm going to tell them. So they tell me their dream, and they say, what does that mean? And I say, nothing. That'll be $20. Come see me again. I'll be right 99.9% of the time. So anyway, (coughs) that's not today's subject. None of this is our subject. The nameless redhead was more concerned with the why of the dead, rich, lying, evil Pharisee, Luke 16:31. Got a note to read that, and here you'll see why when I do it. I hope. Okay. There it is. Let me read it. He, the, here's, I'll start at 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father. He's talking to Abraham. He doesn't beg Abraham. He doesn't. I mean, you've got to remember, this is an evil, clever, vile statement. I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Send Lazarus, he said, to my father's house. For I have five brothers. That he may, does he have five brothers? Probably not. Be suspicious. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them. Talking about Lazarus. Lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No. Pharisee says, No. Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now that's a reference to Christ. Okay? God does not, so that's things we know. God does not allow those who have rejected him, those who have chosen the second death, those who are lost and now confined, those who are evil continually to contact the physically living. Why not? Ask why not. Better ask, better ask, what would be the consequences, I'm in Ecclesiastes 9-4 now, to the living dogs if the dead lions could speak to them or us? 
What would be the consequences if the rich dead Pharisee, who has chosen his torment, his place of evil, and now is completely marinated in evil, what would be the consequence if he had the opportunity to talk to his supposed five brothers? What would he say? And obviously, just as the rich dead Pharisee of all, uh, all the wicked dead would be wicked. All of them would lie. The dead rich Pharisee did not seek to warn his brothers to save them from torment. What was he going to do? He wanted them to be in the same predicament as him. Because why? He's evil. Remember the scorpion and the turtle. Trying to get across the lake. They come to an agreement. Please don't sting me in the middle of the lake. We'll both die. Because I'll be paralyzed and we'll drown, both of us. They get halfway up. The scorpion stings him. The turtle and him are going to die. He said, why'd you sting me? I'm a scorpion, you idiot. It's what I do. He's an evil, rich Pharisee. It's what he does. Not trying to save his brothers. He's trying to do what to his brothers? Trying to kill his brothers. This is the last person I want to be talking to anybody. I don't want anybody in there talking to anybody out here. They're trying to kill everybody. He didn't seek to save them. His intent was the opposite of that. He would lie. He would attempt to deceive them into death. Then, the unnamed redhead said, what of the saved? Why can't they contact us? It's obvious that the, the evil would kill as many people as they could. And they'd be super motivated to do so. Why would they be super motivated to kill as many people as they could? They want to overwhelm God's salvation plan, don't they? So that none are saved. Jonas and I got in a conversation earlier where, where he was talking to somebody who was convinced that you can lose your salvation. Well, if you can lose your salvation again, you're saying that God doesn't have any power, and you're also saying that he's devised a plan by which no one would be saved, because we would all lose it. So then what are you calling him? Stupid. That's what you've done. He says, I'm not that way. Well, what are the saved? Why aren't they allowed to call us on the phone? Wouldn't that be cool? Can they see us? Why aren't they allowed to testify? In other words, is Luke 16.31 true? Let me read it again. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Is that true? Of course it's true. Is it our contention that uh, Christ, his testimony, uh, by adding in a personal contact, could be improved? Because I get that a lot. Mostly, though, I get, are they okay? I just need to know they're okay. They're okay. He says so. How much time would it take 
for everybody to get a personal contact that has ever lived from somebody who is saved to convince you they're okay. What would you be doing to his plan of salvation? You would be adding what to it? Now, I want you to imagine this. Imagine if a saved relative was side by side with a lost relative. Which one would be which? Could you tell the difference? One would be lying to you. One would be telling you the truth. Could you tell? Which is the wheat? Which is the tare? Can we tell? He says, who harvests the wheat from the tares? Matthew 13. Who is the one? The guy even asked, should I go out and cut all the tares down? No. Why not? Because you're taking out the, 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 the wheat. You're not qualified. Who's qualified? His angelic host is qualified. That's what he says. So those are things we should consider as we look again at this 1 Kings 13, 11 through 32 passage that is so rich with prophecy. My particular commentator, and bless his heart, that gave me, the, he didn't give it to me, but I got his Bible because it had large print. But my particular guy, he, uh, he gave me a terrific little title for 1 Kings 13, starting at verse 11. He wrote, Death of the Man of God. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Some of you will have a Bible that says, um, the sin of the man of God. The sin of the prophet, some will say. How do you know? Why are you so quick as a commentator to write that this prophet is a bad guy for what he did? How do you know? This is the wheat and the tare thing again. I don't want to use Jonas again, but he had a wonderful comment. He was talking to somebody that was positive that he could determine who's saved and who's not saved based on what? On their behavior. What are you doing when you're doing that? You're immediately saying that, one, you're the arbiter of salvation, but you're also saying that your behavior is better than their behavior. Wow. Be careful. Don't be so quick to have a high opinion of yourself. Now, we are to discern our leaders for sure. And we are to discern others. But don't get in the weed and tear business. So, these titles in these books, these uh, Bibles that uh, decide that the prophet uh, made a horrible, sinful decision. Maybe, maybe not. One thing for sure, it's, um, it is such a picture of the death of the God-man. The man of God's death is such a picture of the death of Jesus God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Word made flesh. Detail after detail is a picture of Christ's crucifixion and death. And once that is understood, then the immediate ob- uh, obvious question shows up. Did the man of God know that he would die on this mission? When he got the commission, don't eat, don't drink, don't return the same way, and make sure you publicly say it in front of Jeroboam and his group, did he know that he was going to return and he was going to eat and he was going to drink and that the penalty would be death? Did he know? 
did the man of God know that he would die on this mission? You see, if we back up to 1 Kings 12, we find that we have a king of Judah. And he's, uh, by the way, he's decided that more taxes is good. And he's going to tax. Solomon had quite an opulent uh, uh, kingdom, and he was putting a tremendous burden. And so the king of Judah, Rehoboam, that takes over, he decides that he's going to uh, add more taxes. And he sends his tax collector to northern Israel, or the, what's called Israel, from Judah. And what do they do? Do you know the story when he sent his tax collector to tell them, I'm going to collect more taxes? What do you think they did? They stoned him to death. Which, may, by the way, very good advice. Anyway, he decides he's going to raise 180,000, maybe 200,000 men, and he's going to attack. Okay? That's the context of how this all starts. This man of God going to Jeroboam is under this context of the dead tax collector. So this is a conflict between northern Israel and Judah. And and God intervenes and says, no, do not attack with your 180,000 men. He speaks through his prophet. And his prophet has what? He has a name. Shemaiah. I propose to you that that is the name of the man in 1 Kings 13. And he spoke, he speaks through him. And he says, don't raise an army. Don't attack. And here's what he says in 1 Kings 12, 24. Is there a truck backing up or is that just a, is that just a telephone? Is it on the roof? I have no idea what it is. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. It's Eric's fault. That's Yes, it is. Okay. 1 Kings 12, uh, 24. You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. So, 180,000 men are raised, and they're about to attack to avenge the dead tax collector, to get more money, and God through Shemaiah, Shemaiah, if I get that right, says, no, every man go home. This thing is from me. What thing? What thing is from me? He says, don't take this 180,000 men up there. I'm going to do something different. What's he going to do different? He's going to send one man. He's going to send this prophet who is identified specifically as a man of God just five verses before. The, the man of God that we've been discussing goes in and blows things to pieces. So he sends Shemaiah, 1 Kings 12, 22, is where Shemaiah shows up, who says, you shall not go up nor fight, for this thing is from me. Every man returned to his own house. So, again, how much does Shemaiah know? Does he know that he is to wait beneath an oak tree? In other words, why do we assume that Shemaiah 
is unaware of anything that's going to happen? Does he know the entire plan? Does Shemaiah know that he is God's alternative to 180,000 men attacking? He has to know that because he's the one that turns them around. So he's the one, and God says, this thing is mine. It's from me. I'll take care of it. I have a different plan. You're not going to attack. I'm going to submit. I'm going to send one man, the man of God, identified in 1 Kings 12:22 as Shemaiah. And I submit that Shemaiah knows every aspect of the plan. You see, Shemaiah makes certain very publicly that Jeroboam and his people that are around him at the festival know without a doubt. He screams it out. I'm not supposed to eat bread. I'm not supposed to drink water. And I can't return the same way. As loud as he can scream it out, they all know it. I might have 10,000 people that know it. They all know without doubt the three phases of that commandment. So why? Why does he tell them that? Why not just keep it to yourself? Isn't that giving information to your enemies? By the way, did they act on it? What's the purpose of revealing it? Obviously, he and God intended to reveal it. It has great meaning. We're not going to get to it today, but it has great meaning. And God intended to reveal it to as many people as possible. They wanted as many as possible to spread it to as many as possible. It's a many as possible, as many as possible thing. But specifically, we have one person that acts on it, the lying old prophet, who did not recognize the man of God when he came on him. He didn't know who he was. Had to ask him, are you Shemaiah? Are you the man of God that just came in and tore everything to pieces and humiliated the king and turned down his reward? Are you that guy who gave this three-phase commandment? Because I don't know. And Shemaiah said, I am. Why would he do that? Why would he give up who he is to this guy who's chasing after him? Why would he wait under an oak tree until the guy shows up? This recognition recognition disguise theme is everywhere in Scripture. We'll see it next week with the death of Jeroboam's child. His wife goes to a prophet, an old man that's blind, and uh, God tells him, and she comes in a disguise trying to fool him, to end the, and God tells him everything about her and what to say. That's what God does, by the way, with his prophet. He gives them lots of information. They know what they're doing almost every time. So understand that a central element, if not the key element, um, is that Jesus Christ during his death would not be recognized. Even though he stands there and says, I am. They still don't know who he is. They don't know that he is the great I am, which frankly is still the problem, especially in our contemporary seeker-sensitive, offend-no-one church age of Laodicea, Revelation 3.16. Okay? 
But for today, just realize that all throughout the Bible is this disguise. Christ will be disguised during his crucifixion. And people won't recognize who he is. They won't know he's the man, the God-man, right? So, are you the man of God? The old prophet didn't know him. And he answers, I am. Come home with me and eat and die. That's essentially what he says. Come home with me and eat bread and die. And, and the uh, Shemaiah says, no, I have been commanded by the God. I've been commanded by God, YHVH. He uses the YHVH, the tetragrammatron. No bread, no water, don't return the same way. He says, come home with me, eat bread and die. No, no bread, no water, no return the same way. God himself said that. The old prophet says, oh, I got an angel told me different. Said you should come back with me and die. And uh, of course it's a lie. It's a wicked, evil lie. The old prophet was trying to do what? The same thing as the rich Pharisee was trying to do to his supposed five brothers. What is the old prophet trying to do? He's trying to kill the man of God. Now, what's his motive for killing the man of God? It is obvious that's what he's doing. He knew, as I said, that the man of God is marinated in God's power. He knows it. This guy walked into a crowd of maybe 10,000 people armed to the teeth, sacrificing children and walked out of there without any problems. This is a powerful man, and I'm going to kill him. By getting him, I feel like I'm in a Disney movie, by getting him to eat a poisoned apple, after he's been told by God himself, don't do it, I'm still going to go, hey, an angel told me. That's got to work. Not only is he a liar, but he's an idiot. And he did not fool Shemaiah. There's no possibility this worked on him. He's trying to kill him. What's his motive? Why would he attempt with a stupid, obvious lie to have the man of God killed? The choices are, he's after the reward money. Or, he knows that if he accomplishes this, who is forever in his debt? Jeroboam. And now I ask, who hatched the plan? The pagan sons come back to the father and say, Hey, Dad, this guy came up from Judah, made a mess. King hates him, big money. Go after him. See if you can kill him. Now, last week I, I quickly pointed out that verse 20 and verse 23 contains the exact words. Asher Hashibah. And both should be translated the exact way as verse 23 does. Verse 20 should read like this. And it won't in your Bible, but it should. It's the same words as verse 23. So when you look at verse 23, go back and put that, that phraseology or that phrase, if you will, at verse 20. Because when you check the Hebrew, you'll see it is the same words. So I'm going to read verse 20 now as it should read. Now it happened as they sat at the table. So I have the 
the un, Shemaiah goes back with the lying old prophet after he is waiting for him. He goes back with him and they're sitting at the table. Now it happened as they sat at the table. I want to know things. Is the going back, what did they talk about? How long did it take? That the word, now it happened as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet whom he brought back. So who's he in the question? It's not the lying old prophet. And he cried out to the man of God. Who's crying out to the man of God? The Lord God is. That's what the language is saying. So, now it happened as they sat at the table. So while the man of God and his killer sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet whom the word of the Lord had brought back. So now why did the word of the Lord bring him back? And the word of the Lord cried out to the man of God, because you disobeyed, because you came back and ate the poison, you will surely die. Now, what have I done? I've reworded it for you a little bit. I have just conjoined Genesis 3.17 with 1 Kings 13.20. I have somebody who came back and ate the poison in both times, and both times the word of God spoke audibly and said, because you Ate the poison, you will surely die. The order of both, Genesis 3.17, 1 Kings 13.20-22, is extraordinary. And if I'm right, duh, then the answer to the question of why did the man of God go back with the lying old prophet who fed him poison would be identical to why Adam went back to eat the poison with Eve. Same reason. Obviously, Shemaiah knew who the old prophet was. That's why he identified himself. That's why he was waiting for him. I've always wondered what they talked about, as I said. What did Shemaiah say to the old prophet? How much was said before he ate the bread and drank the water? Why would he not return the same way? Because if he went back the same way, who would know? Everybody that saw him come, everybody that saw him there, everybody that sees where he's going. He goes back a different way. He goes among people who what? Didn't see him, didn't know who he was. Again, you have the same disguised, not recognized theme that surrounds the crucifixion. Okay, and it says, as it happened. What happened? As it happened. When exactly he ate the bread and drank the water. The exact moment of the eating and drinking, as soon as he picked up the bread, as soon as he picked up the water. Boom, boom. What? God spoke. So at the exact moment, God spoke and said the God, the man of God would die. The final thought for today, the death of the man of God 
does something. It saves the old prophet. The old prophet is trying to kill him. Doesn't kill him in the sense that he thought. It wasn't the miracles at the altar. It wasn't the commandment. It wasn't the testimony that saved that old prophet. It was the death of the man of God that saved him. That old prophet went out and found out he's the only one that can get the body. He's the only one that can catch him at the tree. He's the only one that can go get the body. I think he knew where the body was. I think the body was where? Under the tree. What is this story about? There's always more. And next week, we'll finish it up. Let's rise and be dismissed.